Daniela Feku Martinez is a registered dietitian and is currently a senior patient education specialist at Seamless MD, where she designs surgical digital care plans for patients. Daniela has a Bachelor of Applied Science in Nutrition and Food and a Master's of Health Science in Nutrition Communication from Ryerson University. As a dietitian in the health tech industry, Daniela enjoys applying her clinical skills and incorporating concepts such as plain language, health behavior theories, and facilitation skills to manage project teams. Her favorite part of the role is reading patients' feedback and being able to make a meaningful measured difference in guiding patients to a safe recovery. This is Daniela's fourth time on the CMSMD podcast. Her first episode was episode number 13 on using digital patient engagement for colorectal surgery. Second was episode 18 on urology surgery. And third was episode 21 on thoracic surgery. So if you're interested in learning how CMSMD designs for those particular use cases, as they are quite different from gynecology, go check them out. Today, we are very excited to have Daniela back on the pod, this time to share more about using digital patient engagement for, you guessed it, gynecology. Uh, Daniela, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Fourth time. That's, uh, I think, a seamless record. Is it, Alan? Is Daniela our most featured guest? I think you and I are actually the most featured Ah, that's right. I'm sorry, Daniela. Almost at the top. (laughs) But aside from that, yes, Daniela, you have set records, and uh, we're now in 2021, and you're on track to set another record for most recurring guests. But we are super excited to have you back on today, and today is actually going to be a unique episode because we're talking about a surgery type, and I believe chemo and and some other use cases for digital patient engagement that is for women's health, which is obviously quite unique. So maybe before jumping into the specifics of digital patient engagement, we do want to understand a little bit more about the gynecology patient. Maybe you can just start there and and kind of give us an overview of of what the patient really cares about regarding their intervention. Sure. I think uh, gynecology patients, like a lot of other patients, what's most important to them is really feeling connected with their healthcare team. We see that over and over again. Um, you know, they, they really, really value that. Um, another thing that's super important to our gynae patients is learning how to manage their infections or uh, look for signs of infection, as well as um, pain management. Uh, knowing what to expect, how to manage it, that, that's kind of what we're getting back from them other things that they really want to know about their specific uh, surgery. So gynecology surgery, I'll talk about this a bit later. There's just so many procedures. Um, so they really like the detailed specific information. Um, and the last thing the patients really like is the um, kind of free text diary sort of option. They really want more opportunities to like write and uh, describe what they're feeling, maybe like things that we haven't been able to capture for them. Danielle, I'm just curious on that last comment about um, wanting to have more of like a, a diary sort of experience. Um, are you seeing that mostly in the gynecology population or is that just common among patients who have sort of maybe an oncology related experience? Um, where, where are you seeing that? I uh, certainly seeing it within our gynecology patients, but I think it is a common theme uh, throughout our surgical patients because I think we focus a lot on the symptoms and like um, clinical presentation of, of problems. But patients, like there's so much more, you know, there's anxiety, things we're not thinking about, there's things that happen in their lives that affect how they're caring for themselves. And I think they just want the opportunity to talk about that and, and describe it. Understood. So Daniela, now kind of shifting gears to that portion more on digital patient engagement. From the conversations that we've had on the podcast, I understand that digital patient engagement sort of provides a, a background virtual care that's guiding the patient through whatever interve- intervention they're having. 
Could you talk a little bit about what's unique in the Gynae program on a digital patient engagement platform compared to some of the other interventions you've, you've built? Sure. Yeah. Um, so within our um, Gynae program, so we have two, like you mentioned, we have our surgical and then we have one that combines surgical and chemo. Um, and I think just the fact that we have surgical and chemo on one platform is unique in itself because it's representative of the patient's entire journey. I know that, you know, at least within Ontario, we're so focused on continuity of care. And I think it's amazing that we've been able to do that for patients. So that alone is unique. But also, I think a really great part of our gynae program is educating women on their own bodies. Like I mentioned, there's so many procedures, probably because there's so many different female reproductive parts. And that's kind of the education that you don't really get in school. You don't really get growing up. Um, so that's a, that's a huge component of our program. Hey, Danielle, I was kind of wondering, you know, when I was looking up some um, stats on, um, you know, women who have a gynecology procedure, let's say, for example, I think a lot of our, our patients are, are, are having hysterectomies and, and having seamless part of their journey. I've seen data where the average age is kind of maybe in the, the 40s of a woman's having a hysterectomy. Um, I was curious, like, is that your sense of the typical patient demographic um, for our gynecology patients on Seamless, or are you, are you seeing something else? You know, we don't really collect age. Um, that's not something that's part of our standard practice, but I would say based on the engagement, I don't think it's a very, um, it's not like an older adult population. You're right. I think it's kind of like that mid, mid-adult age, like 40 to 60. Um, and there are a lot of hysterectomies, not only... Um, like for various reasons when we need hysterectomies, his, sorry, hysterectomies, but also because uh, we serve a lot of oncology patients. So when they go in to remove the cancer, often they'll just say, let's take out the entire, um, you know, reproductive system. Um, so then they'll do the hysterectomy that way. Gotcha. Yeah, because I have noticed that we have particularly high engagement in this population and you know, people always assume, well, I'm not assuming, I think it's a fair assumption that, that age is some correlation with it. I mean, obviously we've seen great engagement with some of the, you know, older patients in our sixties to eighties as well, but, but yeah, it does sound like there might be at least a, a younger population overall in, in this group too. That makes sense. I mean, it makes sense because the rates of um, ovarian cancer and gynecology cancer, you know, you're more likely within that like menopause at like 50, 40, 60 age. So that, that only makes sense uh, to me. Yeah. And so, Daniela, what are some of the unique features that you've built into the program? So obviously, digital patient engagement has a ton of different um, features, I guess you can call them, and, and technology components. So how are you best utilizing that for this population and for these procedures? Yeah, sure. Um, so gynecology surgery can be quite complex for the patient when they go home, unfortunately, um, but that's kind of where we come in. So I would say on our surgical line, we have things like, um, you know, helping patients manage their ostomy at home if they have been going with home with one. Also, patients are going home sometimes with a catheter. Um, so again, helping them, you know, learn how to take care of that, look for problems, troubleshoot. Again, I, I had mentioned briefly uh, kind of sex after surgery. So helping women kind of navigate that with the hysterectomies or the oophorectomies, women get their ovaries removed, it pushes them into menopause. So now we're dealing with things like vaginal dryness, changes in libido, not just your incision. Um, so, so we educate patients on, on those things and then um, kind of through our surveys and our reminders, we also help them troubleshoot. But that's our surgical line. In our chemotherapy line, 
our chemotherapy program, uh, the focus is on med uh, medication education. So there's a lot of talk about what is chemo, what are these medications, what are the side effects. But in addition to chemo, often patients are on a lot of other medications. So they're on things like uh, anti-nausea and different supplements and vitamins. Um, so there's a lot of education around that. And, and Daniela, um, obviously, like, um, depending on the patient's journey, um, you know, a patient may or may not get chemotherapy, for example, after a procedure. How does that work on the platform um, in terms of, you know, making sure it's kind of personalized to the patient based on whether they need chemo or don't need chemo? Or, or how do you kind of figure that out on the platform? Yeah, so it really depends on the surgical group. There's a couple of ways you can do it. Um, so sometimes patients get surgery and then they go into their chemo afterwards. And sometimes they get neoadjuvant uh, chemotherapy. So they'll do a little bit of chemo, surgery, and then chemo again. Um, so we have the opportunity to um, seamlessly <laughs> flip patients back and forth um, based on what they're, what they're getting. So we just need to coordinate with their surgical team. So if we know ahead of time that patients are doing chemo, surgery, chemo, um, you know, they start with all the chemo information. And then, you know, once they get up to their surgery date, they start learning about their surgery. And then um, usually it's about one month later, they start learning about their chemo again. Um, so I think for the patient, it's quite seamless. Um, we just need to know what, what the schedule is ahead of time. Right. Are there particular like validated surveys that the, the gynae population uh, providers are looking to collect and have, have asked you to, to implement into the technology? For chemotherapy, there have been. Um, there's quite a few uh, validated surveys for our gynecology group uh, without the chemotherapy. I don't think there have been any um, that, that I've been aware of, but um, we certainly do have quite a few ERAS programs. So even though there aren't validated surveys, we are following uh, ERAS protocols and, and trying to help patients recover more quickly. Right. And so that, that includes things like tracking compliance from patients and yeah, like, yeah. Things like uh, making sure, reminding patients to, you know, uh, take their chlorhexidine showers. Usually it's two times before surgery. Um, some groups want to do some carb loading ahead of time. Another really important part of ERAS is uh, helping patients ambulate after surgery. So we have things like encouraging patients through reminders, but also allowing patients to track how much they're walking. And then they can actually see their progress and they can track uh, their, you know, how much they're walking over time. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, patients can use their own like pedometers or their cell phones, but this is just another way to remind patients like, hey, this is important. We kind of give them that nudge. Right. Yeah. And I, I remember from our previous episodes with you, you were explaining how um, the explanation of why something is important often motivates a patient and gives them kind of that fuller understanding. It sounds as if the, the digital patient engagement platform is, is fairly flexible, where you can add in different surveys based on what the team wants to collect. How does it work in terms of, uh, let's say, a patient who actually isn't um, signed up for a chemo program yet, but they might need it down the road? Is the patient, like, do they stay on the platform long term or, or how long are, you, are we actually like tracking the patient uh, once they've had their surgery, for instance? So without chemotherapy, usually uh, we follow the patient for one month post-op. Um, but then usually uh, chemotherapy is decided ahead of time. Um, of course, patients can withdraw and like say, no, I don't want to, but usually those things are determined ahead of time. So then it would just be up to the clinical team to let us know whether patients have, you know, declined or, you know, they maybe later on they decide, oh, you know what, we couldn't get all uh, the cancer out. 
I want to put you in some chemotherapy. If it happens that way, um, then the clinical team just needs to let us know and, and you know, work with um, the team at Seamless to move the patient over. Right. What about in terms of feedback from some of the gynae patients? What did they like most about the program? Was there anything that kind of stood out for them or, or alleviated stress? Yeah, we actually, um, we've had a couple of patients that have used other apps from hospitals and just this kind of general, but they actually, uh, one patient had just told us that they actually like this app better than all the other ones they were given from other hospitals. So we don't have the details on what those are, but that was a, a very nice compliment. Um, they Probably really- a patient portal, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm being serious, right? Like, I mean, like, <laughs> I don't think there's too many um, hospitals out there that are providing something like seamless. So usually I kind of assume it's probably a patient portal and they're like, well, all I got, all I got were test results and nothing else. So I wouldn't be shocked if that's what it was. Yeah. hundred percent. I think another great thing that we have that maybe a patient portal wouldn't have is the text message reminders. So it's not just about appointments um, or like, like a test results. But it's also about what you need to do before surgery. So we're talking about, um, you know, the following the ERAS protocols. We pre present reminders about that, and patients really appreciate it. Another cool thing we have on our program is uh, we have a countdown for them. So we have a countdown to surgery, and then um, a countdown after surgery. And sometimes, you know, when you're struggling and you're trying to recover, it can feel like a very long period of time. But we've actually had some feedback that patients really appreciate that countdown. It helps them kind of bring them back to reality. Um, you know, and uh, I, that was that was a really cool piece of right. feedback. It gives them something to look forward to as well, like yeah. watching the progress. Exactly. Um, another thing that patients mentioned they really like is that they didn't know what to look for, so they really appreciated that we broke it down for them in the survey. Like things like um, sometimes patients get shoulder pain after laparoscopic surgery, and mm -hmm. it's a buildup of gas that's left up. But like, how yeah. would you? Do that? <laughs> so, right. uh, guiding patients to know what to look for is is really really important to them. Yeah, I find it really interesting, Daniela. I was taking a look at some of the the post-discharge kind of digital health check questions that you get patients um, uh, tracking symptoms or issues for. So, um, I mean, you mentioned like, you know, shoulder pain, um, but also I noticed that sometimes I think certain patients, they might actually have a stoma after a, a gynecology mm -hmm. procedure and they're tracking, you know, stoma output or issues or that's not something that, that I had, you know, uh, realized uh, for this population could happen. I, I know you mentioned earlier um, drains. They're often tracking issues with that. Um, anything else that, that you've, you've found unique about this population in terms of like um, symptoms or issues you might be monitoring for on the platform? Yeah, I'd say one of the more unique aspects that we have in addition to the stoma and catheter and drain output care is um, the vaginal discharge and bleeding. Um, because you are expected to bleed after surgery. Um, so we do provide uh, patients education and reminders to wear a menstrual pad, but it's kind of hard to identify, at least for a patient, what's, a, what's an okay amount of bleeding? What's an okay amount of discharge, um, vaginal discharge? So we kind of help patients identify, you know, if your clot is this or blood clot is this size, this is not okay. Mm. If your discharge is this color, that's not okay. If your discharge smells differently, that's not okay. So I think those are some of the unique um, aspects of it, as well as on the chemo line we go through, or the chemo program, we go through a lot of the side effects. Um, so some of the ones that most people think about is like nausea, no appetite, um, hair loss, but there's other things like, you know, you can get mouth sores, you can get mouth dryness, um, and you can get different rashes. Uh, so I actually have a question for you guys. One of the rashes 
is a purple rash and it has a bunch of little dots on it. Um, and this is what the rash is called. So I was just wondering if you guys would know how to pronounce this word. So, I mean, I believe Josh actually knows this term and probably knows how to pronounce it. Unless so, I've been taught incorrectly, Alan, which could be the case, you never know. Be. For people just listening to the audio, it's P-E-T-E-C-H-I-A-E. -E -E. I'm gonna take my, my best guess and say uh, Petechia. You got that on the first try? That was right. That's pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> That's pretty good, Alan. Actually, you know, Daniela, next time you should do the uh, the spelling bee thing where you tell us the word and then oh, we have to guess the context. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they're going to do the whole asking you, okay. Uh, language of origin. Yeah, language of origin, using a sentence, <laughs> alternate, alternate pronunciations. I spent like two hours learning how to pronounce it because every time I see it, there's just too many vowels and I can't, I can't figure out how to spell it or to say it. But anyway, I mean, my point is that in chemo and, you know, surgery, there's a lot of terminology and we break it down for patients. So, okay, now I'm scared to say it. Petechia um, is a purple rash and it's a bunch of little blood vessels that burst. Um, and it's quite concerning. It's a sign of low platelet count. And uh, we put that in the survey for patients. We help them identify, um, but there are often a lot of skin discoloration problems with chemo or there are patients just end up with a lot of skin discoloration. So there's things like bruising, uh, the petechiae. Then there's also, you can just get an allergic reaction, skin sensitivity. Um, so that's part of the survey, break it down for patients, help them figure out, you know, when is it an allergic reaction? When is it like sign of low platelet count? Um, just another a unique feature we have on the program. Right. A last thing about the technology that I think is worth mentioning, because you mentioned, you know, there's, there's some patients who would have a stoma after surgery and there's some patients with a catheter and, and different, um, different, what would you call it, like uh, variables that could happen for the patient journey. So um, I think something that's worth mentioning about the technology is how we triage patients effectively through their care. So for instance, you don't wanna give stoma education to just every patient because they might be super confused and overwhelmed by something they don't even have. So how do you navigate the changes in the pathway for a patient? Sure. So usually ahead of time, we try to ask patients, are you planning to get a stoma? Because sometimes patients do know ahead of time. Mm. Um, but again, with gynae surgery, cancer can spread quite quickly. And uh, sometimes they need to take out more than expected. So sometimes that, you know, they end up with a surprise stoma afterwards. We ask patients before surgery and we ask patients again after surgery, do you have a stoma? What kind of stoma do you have? And the most common ones are the ileostomy and the colostomy. Um, so depending where they, what part of the intestine they took out. Um, and based on how patients answer those questions, we can provide them with the education and the troubleshooting questions. Um, and that way we're not overwhelming all of our patients with stoma information. Mm -hmm. And same thing applies to catheters. We're not, we're not like overwhelming everyone, just the patients that need to know. Um, and that is the beauty of digital patient education. Yeah. And, and just to add to that, the same thing applies. Um, and this was taken literally from previous conversations that Danielle has had with us, but um, same thing applies if the patient has diabetes, for instance, then they're gonna get different education or smoke, if they're a smoker, they'll get smoking cessation modules and, and it'll change based on the, the patient profile, as I understand it. 
Yeah, uh, the more we know about the patient, the more we can provide them um, very specific information. So we do try to do that. We try to collect that information, um, but it is all customizable. So it's whatever uh, you know our clinical teams want to educate their patients on. Sometimes it's not relevant. Sometimes you know smoking cessation is super important for our thoracic patients, and that's the focus. Right. Um, something like that for gyneco um, gynecology surgery is less important. Uh, so we, we try to focus on other things that, you know, really concern the patient. You know, something that, that came to mind um, earlier, you know, when you're talking about all the different kind of unique symptoms or issues that, that you track on, on seamless for gynecology patients, a lot of that stuff is very kind of qualitative in terms of really only a, only a patient could, could tell you those things. So for example, uh, I think a lot of times when it comes to healthcare technology and, and monitoring, um, people really gravitate towards just more and more tech. So they'll say, oh, you know, let's put, you know, blood pressure cups and activity trackers and O2 monitors and, and et cetera on patients. And, and that stuff can just kind of come in automatically which is like really helpful for certain patients. So maybe if you're, I don't know, a patient with COPD or heart failure, or maybe a, a cardiac patient um, for surgery, a lot of that data is really helpful. But for a lot of other patients who've had, you know, a gynecology um, procedure or, or something else, um, those kind of like biometrics don't really help as much. And there's no, you know, hardware device that can easily send back to the team. Are you having issues with like vaginal discharge or, What's your pain? There's no device that's going to tell uh, the hospital team what your pain is. That's purely a, a subjective patient experience, right? Or, um, and so it's really interesting to me that despite how how you know prevalent this idea of just more and more hardware and tech is in, in patient engagement monitoring, a lot of the most important information for many many populations really has to come from the patient. And I think you know Daniela, you and your team have done like a fantastic job finding really creative um, ways to interact with patients to help them track that information. And, and, you know, and, until someone builds a, I guess maybe Elon Musk going to do this where, you know, I'm sure he's, isn't he building some kind of implant um, yeah. into the mind? So yeah, until that happens, you're not going to get this information easily from a patient to a care team. They're going to have to like, you know, track it somewhere. So I think that's something that's really unique about the platform. It really is meant to be scalable to all kinds of conditions. Absolutely. And you know what? Um, yes, it's not hard data, but patients are at home they're the ones in charge of their health. So you have two options. You can send patients home with a booklet and Dr. Google, and they're gonna look up everything anyway. Or you can send patients home with Seamless, give them exactly what to look for, and then we can tell them exactly what to do based on the problem they present. So whether you like it or not, patients you know, want to be in control, and at least by giving them concrete information on Seamless, it reduces their anxiety. Um, they know what to look for. They know what to do about it. Um, and okay, maybe they'll still Google, but at least, you know, they have a little more direction. So that's kind of the way I look at it. And you're right. Like, you know, why do we need to look at O2? Why do we need to look at like blood sugar? Like most patients when they're recovering home from surgery, that they're probably doing okay. You probably don't need that kind of information. Um, you know, they're going to have more subtle signs, like, you know, signs of infection and they might not have a fever, but they might have discharge and things like that. So I think, you know, maybe it's not what people want, but I think it's very relevant and uh, very useful for sure. Right. Patient-centered. That Patient makes sense. Yeah. Never uh, heard that term, Alan. That's yeah. the first I've ever heard that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Daniela, as you're aware, normally at this point in the podcast, we jump over to the fast five section where 
I ask five questions of our guest. Now, on our third episode with you, we mentioned because you've been a recurring guest and you're basically a celebrity at this point on the podcast, that next time you come on the show, you can ask us the, the fast five questions. So did you come up with questions and, and would you like to ask Josh and myself these questions today? Okay, I've been dying to do this. So yes, I've come up with questions. Okay. Um, my, I'm so glad to put you guys on the spot instead of you guys putting me on the spot all the time. So how are we gonna do this? Do I ask one question and then you guys both answer or like one at a time? I think that's probably the, yeah, the best way to do it. So maybe uh, we'll, we'll say age before beauty. So you can ask Josh the question first and then. <laughs> all right. Okay. I thought this, my first question I came up with was like really fitting because I'm a dietitian. So if you could be any ingredient in a salad, what would you be and why? Huh, salad. You know, it's funny. I don't know why, but my first thought was like pecans. I feel like you could put pecans on like anything. <laughs> yeah. Josh, have you ever had a pecan? I've had a pecan in a salad before. Yeah. That no, was my answer. I, I know you have Alan, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> you can't you can't choose pecans, Alan. You gotta choose something else. Wait, so that's your answer? Pecan? Yes. I would okay. be a pecan. I, so, I'd be that thing that like is sometimes on salads, but not in every salad. But right. like has anyone ever complained about having a pecan in a salad? I don't think so, right? <laughs> well if there's a single if there's so a single better. pecan, it might be kind of weird, but yeah, if it was a single pecan, that would just be weird. That's true. Good point. So my answer is actually similar to Josh, uh, Josh's answer. So I would say I would be the crouton uh, of the salad. And my reasoning for it is it's not the foundation of the salad, um, but you definitely notice, let's say it's a Caesar salad, you would definitely notice if it wasn't there. And there's also croutons that are just amazing. Like you put some olive oil on it, you know, and it's, it's just fantastic. Um, and it's not liked by everyone. And I, I think that kind of fits with me as well. If, if, you know, some people love it or they hate it and, and that's me. So a crouton is my answer. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. So, Danielle, I never explained my answer. So I'm just a bit nutty. So that's why I put on. And, and actually, Alan, on, on your yeah, crouton answer, have, Alan, have you ever had a, a salad with, with croutons, but without the salad? Just a, just a crouton salad? <laughs> <laughs> That sounds pretty good. Yeah, I'll be honest. I have had that before. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Okay, guys, next question. If okay. you were a wicked tyrant, which country would you rule? So, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, misinformation out there. So we got to be careful about uh, how, how anything we say could be clipped, Alex. <laughs> so... I'm gonna I'm gonna go with um, wait what's I'm gonna go with a a cop out answer. What's the Harry Potter world called? Is it just called like the Wizard World? Yeah, I actually I don't know. So I have no idea. Okay. I know how. Uh, uh, you uh, make believe. You want to rule a make believe world? Yeah. Uh, do we do we know that 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 world is not real? <laughs> <laughs> Good point. All right, I'll, I'll take Voldemort's spot. Good idea. I'll, I'll go with that. I, I, li I like the magic aspect. That's pretty That's cool. A tough position. Good luck. Right. Yeah. A lot it of is. enemies. 
so uh, my answer wasn't really around um, political oppression or anything like that. I interpret the word wicked. I'm of the generation where wicked meant, you know, great and awesome. So <laughs> the tyrant part. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll ignore that that word but uh, the country that I chose was uh, either like Greece or Spain and I simply chose it because the weather is great there and I, I would I would like to rule in a, a place that I enjoy so Greece or Spain would be my answer. Nice that's what I was thinking too just mm -hmm. take me somewhere with beaches. Exactly, Wait no one yeah. wants to rule Canada? Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> yeah. I feel like the people would be too difficult to rule. <laughs> <laughs> Well, at least I have less people in those European countries. That's true too. That's a good point. Yeah. Okay. Next question. What was your worst haircut you've had and how old were you? Yeah. So I don't know how old I was, but I do know which one it must be. And it was like that transition between when I was getting my haircuts at, at home as a kid from my parents and then kind of shifting to, um, you know, a hairdresser or a barber. Um, so Did I want to say bowl? I was probably seven or eight. I don't remember, but basically, um, cause my, my dad always cut my hair growing up mm -hmm. and there was one time where I just don't think it went well. And then I had to go to the hairdresser after to get it cut. And I'm pretty sure that's when I just kept going to the hairdresser. Right. There was a transition period where it's like, it doesn't make sense for this to happen at home anymore. Because I actually, I think at some point I actually start caring about how my hair looks. Mm. That must be what it is, right? You start yeah. caring about how it looks. It's like, you know, I need a more professional job on this. I think that's what happened. But you don't remember what kind of haircut it was? Uh, I mean, when I was growing up, the haircut was just called shorter. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't really have too many styles of haircut. Yeah. Um, my worst haircut would either be this past lockdown period where I didn't cut my hair. So that would be, you know, in the last year, that was, that was pretty, days, you know? yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and for folks who are uh, aware of the podcast, when we first started, you can, you can see my haircut uh, at that period of time. So you can go back and watch those episodes. Um, but then I actually did remember, I did get a haircut once. I think I was in grade five, grade four, grade five, and I dyed my hair blue. And uh, it was definitely the worst haircut. I know my parents were super upset and it was, uh, it was a whole ordeal, but uh, I think I liked it in the moment. And then probably a week later, I was like, oh, this stuff doesn't come out. Like, like it's awful. But uh, yeah, so that was probably my worst haircut. I was probably, I don't know how old you are at that age or grade five. Maybe like 10, 12, 10, 10, 11. I'm actually so surprised that no one said your siblings gave you a haircut. No, it never happened. Yeah, really? never. Yeah, yeah, never happened either. Oh, I mean, we all gave each other haircuts, especially when we were younger. Like I'm really? one, of, one of three sisters. So like definitely one time my sister just took my hair and was like, <laughs> and like gave me like little, oh, no. little bangs and you know. Did, did anybody ever buzz your hair? No. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been it would have been a bad haircut yeah I mean I didn't really know about buzzers because we're all girls so like, right. it didn't exist in my house you know uh, true <laughs> yeah so. great is, is that all the, the fast okay it was technically six I guess because there was three questions times two people answering so we'll let it slide 
I think that was great. Uh, <laughs> what a stick with a roll, Alan. <laughs> it's called the Fast Five, but all right. Um, Daniela, thank you so much for being on the show again. Uh, today, we, we talked about obviously women's health and, and using digital patient engagement for gynecology. Um, super informative, definitely a, a lot of great insights in that conversation. And um, and just want to thank you again for, for being on the show for the fourth time, our, our favorite celebrity on the show. So thanks, Daniela. <laughs> thanks so much, Daniela. Yeah, thanks for having me. Mm-hmm.